This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Danny Gold, a journalist and documentary filmmaker. I've known Danny for a long time. We used to work at Vice News together before it uh, changed direction. Danny has just got back from El Salvador where he's been reporting on the MS-13 gang and how members are trying to leave by converting to evangelical Christianity in prison. He was in the jails, he spoke to former MS-13 members and 18th Street members, another gang there. He's also going to tell us about the death squads which are organising via WhatsApp who are killing the gangs in their neighbourhoods. This episode is sponsored by DefencePost.com also, if you want to hear bonus episodes, it's patreon.com slash popularfront. So you just got back from uh, El Salvador, right? And I, I think a lot of people forget that there's a lot of warfare still going on there with the gangs. Uh, can you explain why were you in El Salvador and, you know, what is new there? So, you know, I had done a story in El Salvador in 2015, and that was when the murder rate there was just sort of going through the roof. I think... 2015 was the first year um, that it became the uh, the sort of uh, highest murder rate country, peacetime country in the world. I think 2014 was Honduras, which was you know the same sort of gangs that were that were committing these crimes. Um, so I had gone there to do that story, and um, you know people know about MS13. There's another gang there called uh, toward, called 18th Street, otherwise known as Barrio 18. That's divided into two factions: the Serenios and the Revolucionarios. Uh, these are the sort of three gangs that are terrorizing the country. So I was doing that sort of story. They had just declared the government that these gangs were were, were terrorist factions. The people that were parts of them could be charged as terrorists. And I was in what's called the Bartolina, which are like these small jails. I think they're, they're police jails. Or they're essentially holding cells um, before prisoners get sent to prisons. And I went into a Bartolina and, you know, how it works is they were like, okay, this is the, the 18th Street cell. This is the MS-13 street cell, and this is the normal cell where there are also the reform members. Um, and I was confused because you had 18th Street guys and MS-13 guys, MS-13 guys, and you can see it because they have it tattooed on their faces, uh, mixing in the same cell. And I asked, what is going on here? And they explained to me um, that these guys had converted to, to evangelical Christianity, they had found God, and the gangs had allowed them to leave, which is sort of the only way that you can do that. And they were mixing together. And that sort of struck up my fascination. I didn't really get to probe into it during that trip. But for the next few years, it was always something that was in my mind. Um, and then when you look into the history of El Salvador and why evangelicalism sort of sprouted up, that's what sprouted in my mind, uh, this sort of fascination with what was going on. So I returned um, at the end of, in the middle of May this year, to take a look at this process of how these gang members leave the gang through the evangelical church and become born again, which is growing at a rapid rate. You know, I went to a prison in El Salvador where there were 300 MS-13 guys that were born again Christians getting out of the gangs. So yeah, my trip down there right now was looking at what's going on with, with the gang warfare there, but mostly focused on on the only way out, which is through evangelical Christianity. But the warfare, the gang warfare is still really hot, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not... I feel like warfare is almost the wrong way to talk about it because it's very, it's very hidden, right? When you go to El Salvador and you go into these neighborhoods, it's really hard for a video journalist because you go there and you're not going to see guys on the street corners with giant face tattoos. You're not going to see guys holding guns uh, in poor neighborhoods, right? Everything is hidden. 
Um, even the police will be like, look, we, we drive through these neighborhoods. We don't clash with these guys anymore. We don't see them. You know, everything is done through WhatsApp. Uh, and the second anyone who's not from the area or anyone suspicious enters a gang control neighborhood, everyone knows because everyone's an informer down to like an eight year old kid up to a, like a, a senior citizen selling snacks on the corner. So you're not going to see these like gang clashes. What they do have now is, is, uh, is extrajudicial death squads who are mostly made up of like former law enforcement or, or, uh, or military guys who, who have, you know, taken gang members and, and assassinated them and killed them. And the gangs sort of operate the same way. You know, they do hits, but you're not seeing like street clashes. There were some of those in 2015. There were clashes between the police and gang members. You're not seeing that anymore. And it makes sense because the police and the law enforcement and, and the military have an overwhelming amount of force. Like they cannot, the gangs cannot compete with them. But what you have is stuff that, that's happening in the shadows right now. Um, what's interesting, and I think you'll actually like this angle, is that there are a few towns in the north that are these former guerrilla towns, right? Where you have former, former, you know, revolutionary cells, former, former guerrillas from the civil civil war, and they're they're still they're not really operating, but they're still in these towns. And you had the gangs try to make inroads into these towns, and they would they would warn the gang members like, "That's not going to get play here. You guys aren't going to survive here." The gang members wouldn't listen, and then they'd kill a bunch of them and leave them in the town square as a warning. And they're they've sort of been these villages where the gangs haven't been able to make inroads because these revolutionary cells are just not going to put up with it, and they're not really active in in any way. The, these, these cells, except for the fact that if the gang members try to make inroads, they get dealt with and they get forced out. So the guerrillas, former guerrillas, would kill a lot of gang members and then leave them kind of on display. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't say a lot, but like anytime these gangs, and, and it's interesting in El Salvador, which is different, I think, from Honduras and Guatemala, because it's spread out throughout the whole country, right? It's in rural areas now. Um, tiny villages, gang members just take them over. But they would try to do this in these areas where, you know, these guys in the 80s, like there was a very brutal civil war in El Salvador. Um, and these guys, you know, not, they're not still active, but they're still around. And they just were not going to put up with gang members coming into their communities. And like these guys, I mean, these guys are, you know, these guys, MS-13, uh, Barrio 18, like these guys are killers, right? But they're no, they're no match for any sort of like heavily trained police squad, military squad, guerrilla squad. Like they just are not on that level. They'll, they'll, they'll sneak up on you, they'll kill your family, but when it comes to, to actual military technique or something like that, I mean, a lot of these guys are like kids, man. They really are 15, 16, 17 years old. Those are the ones doing the hits. You know, I had this situation um, with my partner. I was working down there who's been there for two years, and uh, he, he was telling me about this kid, and he was like, yo, man, this guy, this guy is terrifying. Like, I gave him a ride home once, and it was just like not... Like, I shouldn't have done that. I didn't know who he was. But afterwards, they were like, this guy's got warrants out. He's a killer. Be careful. And and finally, we were at a point where he was there, and he, he pointed him out to me. And this kid is like 15 years old, you know, maybe 110 pounds soaking wet. Looks like, like he doesn't even have to shave. I could walk up to this kid and put him in a headlock and give him a noogie without a problem. But, you know, these are the kids that are that are carrying out these these massacres and these hits in El Salvador. In 2016, I think it was 2016, I remember seeing a video uh, where the gangs in El Salvador were saying, like, we're going to start taking the war to the police. And they were kind of acting, at least in their propaganda, more like a kind of militant force than a, than a, you know, a criminal gang. And I remember that was, I think, the end of a ceasefire because there was a ceasefire for a while that was quite good, right? And it, it lasted. And I, I think the priests orchestrated it or something like that. 
Right, right. So there was it was it was it was a uh, you know the churches are always heavily involved, and it was a former guerrilla, this guy Raúl Mahanga, who I've interviewed. Um, that was in 2012 when the ceasefire was uh, was negotiated, and I believe it lasted to the middle of 2013. I could be off by by a year. Um, but so there, there's debate about whether that was effective or not, right? Because the murders went down tremendously, but a lot of people say disappearances went went up to almost replace those murders, and it, it conferred this sort of status on the gangs that they, they didn't have. Gangs are talking to politicians. There's rumors of like vote trading and vote buying, um, and the fact that the gangs were, you know, they moved the the maximum like the, the head gang members out of maximum security prison into regular security prison so they could communicate with their gangs. People were saying they were shoring up defenses and like just sort of like, you know, rebuilding. Um, so there was a lot of, of talk about how that might not have been as effective as it once appeared. And there's a lot of people that are really angry about that ceasefire. So that ended, I think, in mid-2013. And then 2014, 2015, when it really, really went through the the roof, the 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 uh the murders and there were there were hits on police 2014 2015 um and there were some some gun battles but but the reality is that they are just like you know overmatched like they cannot compete if you're going to meet face to face with these with these with the police and with the uh with the military like they they don't the gang members don't stand a chance so they talk a big talk i went out on patrol with the police uh 2015 and they were talking about how you know they're killing police they're coming after us i went out on patrol with them again in 2018 in may and they were like no we don't see them like the second we enter a neighborhood they're they, they, they go and they hide they run around like rats so why is that because you know i remember now i did just jogging my memory because i read a lot about this when you first went when we were both at vice and uh, i remember they were finding mass graves in amongst the ceasefire you know there was people had to specifically go out and find them and dig up these bodies where you know, they were like, oh, the murders have gone down and then they'd find a mass grave. And it was like, actually, like you just said, they're kind of going on. What has changed for the gangs to, I mean, I mean, it sounds like they're almost scared or they're on the back foot now. There must have been something that, that triggered that. So that's what I thought as well. I mean, what triggered it is they had a they had a new um, policy. So they started the Mano Dura uh, policy, which is Iron Fist. I think the first iteration was in the early 2000s. And it is exactly what it sounds like. They cracked down hard. And then there was a super iron fist that started around 2014, 2015, which again is going after the gangs really hard, sort of no mercy. At one point, the police were given permission to sort of fire fire at them, uh, that they wouldn't be, you know, hassled about it. Um, and they, they went after the gangs really hard. They took a lot of the, uh, the, the, the maximum leaders and they put them in these really, really severe jail cells, um, so they, they couldn't communicate with the other gang members. You know, there were rumors while I was down there this time, I saw a photo of these supreme leaders being starved to death or just starved in general. Um, so the government now is just not really not really playing around. And that's where you get these talks of, of death squads that are, you know, po- former police or current police that are going out there and just killing gang members and suspected gang members. And you've, got, you've gotten, you know, agencies, uh, human rights uh, agencies, NGOs that have done reports on extrajudicial killings, on violations of rights, on, on police just like going into neighborhoods and just executing gang members or suspected gang members. Um, so again, my impression going down there this time was that they were on the back foot, but I asked the police and they were like, no, I mean, they are growing. They are still growing. They just operate in, in, uh, in, in, in the shadows now and we can't do anything about it because they're they're hiding out really well and it's interesting because you have the gang members all communicate with their informants on whatsapp so you have these chat groups where the second you enter a neighborhood everyone knows and the death squads also communicate on whatsapp 
It's almost like this entire war is being fought through WhatsApp. So they had, um, you know, the El Salvador newspapers are amazing newspapers. If you can read Spanish, El Faro, Factum, they do amazing work. And they had an expose, I think, in the beginning of this year on these death squads that were operating in WhatsApp. And you, they just got into the chat groups and were just hanging out there as these guys were communicating about, like, uh, next time you kill these guys, make it look more like it was a gun battle. You know, you're fucking up. You're making it look too... too uh, too, too much like an extrajudicial killing, you know, things like that that were happening in these chat groups. It's fascinating. Fuck, that is so fascinating. I mean, modern warfare, right? Like, death squads via WhatsApp. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts, you know? <laughs> so It's so weird as well. Like, it's so obvious at the same time. You know what I mean? It's like, why would they be using walkie-talkies if they can use WhatsApp? But it's still, I, I don't know why. I've seen so many things like this, and it always kind of shocks me slightly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the, the situation down there, I feel like people get the wrong impression. It's really, really fascinating. Another thing, too, now is that the gang members aren't, you know, the guys who have joined the gang in the last five or six years, they're not getting the face tattoos. They don't dress like homeboys. You know, they are, they're not stupid, right? So so the, the leaders have been like, don't get tattoos, don't get this, don't get that. So we'd be walking around. Um, and, and my colleague, uh, who'd been down there for a few years would be like, that guy's a gang member. I'd be like, are, are you, or was a gang member? I'd be like, what are you talking about? This kid looks like, you know, your normal 14, 15 year old emo kid. And he'd be like, no, like that dude, that dude's a gang member. And it, it's, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot going on down there that I think gets the wrong impression, uh, especially in the States because of, you know, whatever it was, Nat Geo or Discovery Channel documentaries from like seven or eight years ago, where maybe it was like that back in the day, but it's not like that anymore. So they're adapting, it sounds like. Completely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they know. Um, look, face tattoos look awesome. They're terrifying. Uh, and they do, a, they do a good, you know, it's a good method for intimidating people. But that makes you a target right off the bat. They also end up looking like emo rappers now as well. Like. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. Marisol Vitrucha started, MS-13 started as the Marisol Vitrucha stoners in LA in the 70s. And these were guys with like, with like, yeah, with like long hair. I mean, it started as like not really a gang, more like a group of dudes who used to like smoke weed and listen to like heavy metal and Iron Maiden and like, uh, you know, hang out together. And, um, and it morphed eventually into what it is now. But these guys were like, uh, you know, they look like, like you're, you're, you're like Latin American rockers. Um, and a friend of mine who lived in Honduras in the 90s tells the story of uh, the Rockeros. So he'd be in a neighborhood, and this is the late 90s, so the gangs weren't as extreme as they are now. And he'd be in a neighborhood where there were gang members, and they'd be like, the Rockeros are coming, the Rockeros are coming. And they would be scared of these guys who like walked around like, you know, they thought they worshipped Satan, and they they uh, they had long hair and like wore leather jackets, and people were scared of them back then. Like Latin American Hells Angels kind of vibe. Right, 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 right. Uh, and you see that, I mean, you know, there is there is a level of the occult with, with MS-13, and it's not like they really worship, and 18th Street too, it's not like they really worship the devil, but they talk a lot about the devil, and there's a lot of 666 stuff, and the theory is that that's a holdover from these guys in the 70s who were like, you know, into Ozzy Osbourne and Iron Maiden, and like, you know, all the devil talk from back then, uh, and, and that sort of morphed into this thing that it is now. And you do meet guys who are like, you know, I made a deal with the devil or like, uh, the, the devil took over my body. I mean, I think what they mean mostly is, is, you know, crack and, 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 and drugs and alcohol, but they frame it in a way that's like, I, I was worshiping the devil. The devil took a hold of me. And now, especially when you get into evangelical Christianity, like this, this rescued me from the devil, uh, Jesus rescued me from the devil. And, you know, when you're talking to guys who used to, like, chop people up and now they're, you know, praying to Jesus every single day, it starts to make a little more sense than it would normally. Yeah. 
I think now is a good time to probably talk about what these gangs actually do. Like we've all heard, you know, MS-13 and uh, 18th Street and they're, you know, these kind of evil gangs and whatever. What is their main business and what do they do to enforce that? So the thing is that these guys are not cartels, right? They are not making a ton of money. These guys are living hand to mouth. Like a lot of them are really poor. They're not, they're not doing well. Um, but their main money is extortion. La renta, you know, the rent. Um, they are making money from extorting everyone in, in El Salvador. Every business is chipping in, you know, a couple of dollars here, a couple of dollars there, whether it's bus drivers, taxi drivers, a food stall, like that is where their money comes from. That and selling drugs locally. You know, there's also other stuff, car theft, pimping, things like that. But their main their main business is is uh is extortion. These are not like transnational cartels, right? They're not moving large amounts of cocaine. I think in the states, obviously, it's a whole different thing. It operates a little differently. Uh, you know, in 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 California, MS13 and and 18th Street are under the they're they're subservient to La M.A., the Mexican mafia, which controls you know Southern California. Um, in New York, in Long Island, in Washington, uh, in Virginia, they're a little. I'm not even sure. I, you know, it could be mostly local drug dealing and stuff like that. But in El Salvador. It is extortion. That is the number one way they're making money. So the gangs, um, you know, for a Brit, it's a little bit hard for me to understand because we don't hear too much about the kind of influence of these gangs in, uh, you know, the Western world, for want of a better phrase. So so how does it operate? I mean, there are theories that differ, but I think the, the most widely accepted one is that 18th Street started in the 60s. It was a Latino gang. Um, accepting people from all cultures. And and uh, Marisalva Trucer was Marisalva Trucer Stoners, which started in the 70s. You know, these are poor uh, Salvadoran immigrants and refugees that were living in, in like, you know, hard neighborhoods where other gangs operated, Mexican and black. They needed some form, form of protection. So they started that way. And then once the Civil War kicked off in the late 79 to 80 is when it really kicked off, um, you had an influx of refugees coming who were sort of you know, some of them were, were scarred by, by this brutal civil war, which the U.S. played a big role in. You know, the U.S. supported the right-wing government in El Salvador, trained them, contributed a lot of money. Um, so we do, you know, I'm not one of those guys who blames the U.S. for every problem on the globe, but we do hold, the U.S. does hold a, a, a big responsibility in, in starting these gangs. So you had this influx of members in the 80s, and these gangs grew exponentially, um, 18th Street and MS-13. And then in the 90s, there was a new law passed which led to the deportation of a lot of a lot of gang members back to El Salvador. So what you had was deporting hardened gang members back to a country that just got out of a civil war in 1992 with no institutions, you know, no law enforcement, completely poverty stricken, and like really no way to control these guys and, and no idea what was going on. So you deported them back and these guys like ran rampant, you know, and these gangs started started like really rising up. Um, and you meet these guys in El Salvador right now who speak English because they, they came up in L.A. in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, the gangs morphed into an entirely different thing in the 90s and 2000s there. And they just got savage, you know, machetes growing exponentially. You know, they had initiation rights that involved murder. Um, and they just swelled in the country and took over because El Salvador and, and to a lesser degree Guatemala and Honduras had no idea what they were facing. Um and then you had factions that sort of uh, – so El Salvador is one thing, right? You have this vicious gang that took over. But then you have factions that sprang up in, in California, like I said, where they originally took, took press, uh, had existed. Uh, Houston, Virginia, Maryland, Long Island, 
Um, but these get, I mean, these gangs over there, they're they're a shade of what they are in El Salvador, right? You have this sort of Trumpist uh, idea that MS-13 is invading the U.S., wreaking havoc. They're a threat to everyone, and that is not the case in the U.S. They're a threat primarily to Central American immigrant communities. Um, the same communities that are being sent back to El Salvador and attacked by the policies in the U.S. right now. In El Salvador, they are what Trump describes them as. Like, they terrorize the country. It's not like you walk around the country and you're constantly in fear, but they have a hold over certain neighborhoods. And, it, it, yeah, they're they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, you did have some growth in the past five or six years in some of these neighborhoods, uh, like I said, in Long Island, in Virginia, in Houston, in Maryland. Um, but it's, it's weird because at the one hand, you know, these gangs are, are very structured, but it's a loose structure. So the gangs on the East coast, um, they don't take like direct orders from, from El Salvador to, to a big degree. You know, it's really hard to understand. I don't particularly understand it. Um, they sort of operate, uh, differently than the other gangs, even though they are sort of subservient to them, but it's not like a cartel where everything is interconnected, right? They have like autonomous cells, it sounds like. Right, they are, they, they have some degree of autonomy, and you do have members who have come from El Salvador and, and sort of led to a growth in these cells. They're not really coming at the direction of the gangs in El Salvador, they're coming for the same reasons that anyone migrates, right? Um, for opportunity, family reasons, or whatever it is, but like, 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 it is fair to say that some of these gangs have seen growth over the past three or four years. And I don't want to say that as an excuse to give credence to like what Trump and the Republican Party is saying. That's not true. But like you do have a couple members that have snuck in, that have gotten by, and you do have a few members that that allegedly were sent. Um, but there's not these levels of like insane communication. They've tried to get more organized. They've tried to like really bring the gangs under some sort of, you know, national organization, but it hasn't really worked out. So going back to how they originate, so they start, they were El Salvadoran, El Salvadoran, Salvadoran, right? Salvadoran, yeah. Yeah, so the Salvadoran immigrants came to America uh, in bad neighborhoods. There were gangs there. These guys started their gangs, then got yeah. deported when the countries they came from were in total chaos, right? Yeah, I mean, it really jumped up in the 80s when, when you had a ton of refugees pouring in here that were battle-hardened. So I guess they kind of learned their for want of a better word, they learned their craft, you know, being massive criminals in El Salvador, then came back, then they're, they're all over the place. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard to, 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 to say, to specify that. I think, you know, I think you had some who came in who learned their craft, maybe in the Civil War or, or you know, traumatized by what they saw and all the violence they saw. But you have others who learned their craft on the streets of Los Angeles, you know, in the 70s and 80s where, you know, you had an insane amount of gangs that were there and, and you know, people were poor and they needed money to get by. So I think it's a mixture of that. Like, I, I don't think you can specify they learned their craft in El Salvador or Los Angeles. I think it's sort of mixed together in the late 70s and 80s. And then they got they started getting sent back in the 90s. And that's where things just took off to a whole new level inside El Salvador. But of course, you know, the, the Salvadoran ones that come here, like, they have a level, I think, of the ones that came up in the 90s and 2000s that, or even the, the young kids that come here at 16, 17, they are definitely seen as more of a, you know, they, they have a lot more cred in the ones that that are ba that have only come up in the U.S. because it's a whole different ballgame out in that country. And then when you come here, you have law enforcement that does not fuck around, you know, and, and will crack down a lot harder. Not a lot harder, but a lot more efficiently than they do in El Salvador. Sure. And, you know, we whenever you hear about Latin American gangs or, you know, the, the criminal networks there, 
the violence is always like absolutely out of control from what I hear anyway, you know, from what you see in the news. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that because you've been there, you've interviewed these guys, you've been on the ground with them. Um, maybe you can tell us, you know, what have they been up to? Yeah, I mean, the violence is is out of control. You know, they do, you know, they chop people up, they torture people. Um, and any transgression versus the gang can be met with like, a ton of violence if they think you're speaking to someone else if you're crossing if you're just going into the wrong neighborhood um you know they've they've had talks about not putting people's addresses on ids in el salvador because of that reason uh it will be met with violence you know you meet a lot of people have family members that have been targeted that have been attacked and a lot of stuff happens within the gang itself as a form of discipline like gang members kill their own um it's it's really when i say kill their own i mean like that are in the same gang as them uh, so there is there is an extreme level of violence. Like homicide, there is a way of life with these gangs, uh, and they don't they do not tolerate um, any form of uh, any transgression, any dissent. And you have to really negotiate when you go into these neighborhoods that are gang controlled. And you've got to be really careful that the people you talk to, you know, there's a level of fear there. People do not want to appear on camera. People don't want to be seen talking to journalists because any sort of questions the gang has will be met with violence. You know, they're not gonna they're not gonna be understanding when it comes to anything they perceive as going against them. And how well armed are they? I mean, they they, they do a lot of their murdering with machetes, but they have guns. I I, I don't think they have you know AKs, uh, you know, hidden in, in every neighborhood. But they have they have guns. They have handguns. They have they do have some guns like that. You're not going to see them. Um, but they're not. You know, these aren't cartels. Again, they're not cartels. They're not a bunch of dudes with AR-15s running around the country but they, they get the job done one way or another. I think it's really interesting that they sound kind of well-organized, but still quite ragtag still. Right. It, it's, it's a hard thing because there are so many contradictions. On the one hand, you meet these kids and they're, like I said, they're like 15 and 16 years old. They're wearing like mesh shorts and a tank top. And you're like, these can't possibly that be well-organized, but they see everything. They hear everything. Um, and they, they will figure stuff out and they will, they will, you know, they have a network and they kill people very, very easily. And if they find stuff out and they do find out everything, they will go after you. So it, it does. It's really hard to wrap your head around it because it seems so loose and so unstructured. But at the same time, there is this level of organization there that, you know, allows them to strike out at at, at, at people that they need to strike out at. So it's it, it, it is. And, and, and you read even these researchers who spend years looking into it are still sort of talk about the, the, the contradictions and the like trying to wrap your head around what they actually represent. And it's, it's hard. It's not easy. Um, and again, I'm speaking of, of El Salvador. I haven't really focused on them in Honduras or Guatemala. Obviously I think it's different in some of these countries, but in El Salvador, that's the way it is. Like, you know, we, um, I stayed with a friend who lives in a beach community and you have, you know, MS 13 beach gang. And we'd be walking on the beach. And he'd be like, those guys are, those are some of the guys, the kids right there. And there are like these like 15 and 16 year old kids playing in the water with their dogs who are just like horsing around. And that's MS-13 to, to a degree. And you're just like, what the, f-? and like we'd joke around. I'd be like, look, the two of us could easily take the five of them. <laughs> and then they'd come back and murder us afterwards. Jake, you're a big guy. You could wreak havoc across the country uh, if it was just fist fighting. I'm telling you, these guys are not that scary when it comes down to it and especially when i was spending time in the church even the guys with the you know whose faces are blasted with the with the tattoos you get to meet these guys and they're just like sort of these somewhat adorable cuddly figures who just seem like they want a hug and a pat on the back and then you hear their background and you're like whoa these guys so you get you get friendly with these guys and then someone's just like yeah i mean that guy was in jail for murder like that guy tortured people and it just it doesn't make sense to you but that's just kind of how it is 
And so you were there, um, as you just said, you were there, what, two months ago, right? Tell us why you went. What was your story there? So my story was focusing on uh, on the gang members who are leaving. And uh, they the way they leave is through the evangelical church. And it's really interesting because, you know, El Salvador was a primarily Catholic country. Um, the Civil War kind of really kicked off when a priest, Archbishop Romero, well, bishop, uh, was killed in the 80s. Uh, in 1980, and that's how the thing kicked off. So El Salvador was a prim- primarily Catholic country, but evangelicalism has really sprung up in the 80s, and it was sort of promoted by the right wing there um, because you know Catholicism back then was preaching liberation theology, right, which is standing up um, for the poor. Uh, you know, it's, it is what it sounds, liberation theology, and that was encouragement to the guerrillas. Um, but evangelicalism it's much more accepting your path you know suffering through god and all that sort of thing so it was promoted by the right wing by the aristocracy some allege it was promoted by the cia um and you had churches going down there and preaching their mission so evangelicalism has shot up tremendously in the country in the 80s and you know the gangs have always had a weird relationship with the church they're they're some of the only ones who can work in these communities uh and somehow it was excited, decided that like the only way out through the gang of the gang, which you know you're in for life, is be, by becoming an evangelical Christian. So you have these movements starting up in prisons right now, and some outside where you have people really converting to evangelicalism, uh, and and they have to be serious about it, right? They have to. The gangs will watch you if you say you're a convert, and you come out and you're seen drinking, you're seen cavorting with like you know prostitutes and all that. They'll kill you. Like, you really have to stay on the straight and narrow if you're going to say this because it is a, a way out to a degree. And a lot of these guys, maybe they have beef with their own gang. Maybe they've, they've, they've snitched on someone. Maybe they have beef with another gang. Um, and it doesn't make them untouchable, right? But it does give them a level of protection that they wouldn't have through anything else. Um, so what's this fascinating world? Well, these guys who live these lives of, like, you know, drugs, gangs, violence, doing whatever they wanted, uh, partying all night, become these evangelical Christians – and they have to stay on that path because if they slip up, they could easily get murdered, like without a doubt. And they, they are watched. They are watched by the police who don't believe them. They are watched by their own gang. They are watched by rival gangs. Uh, and it's it's re- it's a really fascinating world. And do, do I believe all of them? I don't know. I definitely believe some of them because it's not an easy path to walk down. I mean, I don't know, but it sounds to me like perhaps the gangs are not killing these guys because they're deviating from the path of this new god vibe it's like don't take the piss you got out you have to be serious you know what i mean oh yeah oh for sure um and some of them you meet i mean these guys some of these guys were like dudes who were using hundreds of dollars of drugs a day living like kings and now they're living in these one-room shacks and like devoting all their time to preaching and, and doing stuff like that and and you know some of them seem sincere the others i don't know and even the ones that are sincere will tell you, like, yeah, some people use this as a mask to get out, you know, if they uh, if they owe a debt of money, if, you know, they're in a lot of trouble. Um, and some of them who even, you know, take the plunge and become super evangelical Christians end up getting killed. A guy who we had met was killed in front of a church um, last week. Uh, he was an 18th Street guy. He was killed allegedly by MS-13. Um, so it is a, is not a complete get-out-of-jail-free card. But, yeah, it is uh, – and it, it is – it's weird, you know, because you see these guys who really think the only way out is the church. And you do have hundreds of members of people converting. Um, and it provides this structure that a lot of these kids who join these gangs, you know, they come from broken families. They come from, from like, you know, they, they've either run away from home or the parents are alcoholics or they don't have parents. And they, they join the gangs and the gangs are a structure and a family to them. And then getting out, the church is the same thing. 
It, it gives them guidance. It gives them a brotherhood that they don't have anywhere else. It fills um, one hole as the gang that I guess. Right, right. Um, so it, it's a fascinating phenomenon. Um, and some of the gang members talk about the church as the only way because there is not a lot of programs for these guys if they want to leave the gangs to get out. You know, there's not a lot of job training. The government provides very little. In jails, there are. There's a Yo Cambio program, I Change, which like, which I witness and, and really does seem like it's working inside. But they get out. They have these stigmas. No one wants to hire gang members. If you have facial tattoos, like you're screwed, you know? And you, you were in the jails, Danny. Like that, that is something I'm interested in. You were in these jails where the MS-13 gang members are on the 18th Street. What is that like in there? Um, so we saw a jail. I mean, we saw the jail they wanted us to see, right? We got permission. It's not like 10 years ago where you could just go in and the gangs completely control the jails and they're having parties in there. You know, some of the earlier documentaries you can see on El Salvador, you can see that sort of thing. Um, we saw what they wanted us to see. And what I saw was like pretty phenomenal in terms of rehabilitation. We were in a gang, in a jail with like in, in a prison with 300 Apanteos is the name of the prison with about 300 converts. Um, there was one guard watching all of us. You know, these guys were were in these like you know uh, were were praying really fervently. Then they had these like talking groups. They had gardens. You know, they were sewing. It, it seemed like a pretty phenomenal thing. But again, that's what they wanted us to see. There's the section for the non-converts that we were not allowed in, which I'm sure is a lot harder of a way to live. Um, and then there's the really serious jails, which we get we can't get into. Which again, there are rumors that these the maximum leaders of the gangs are being starved. Uh, I, I can't confirm those. I saw a photo. I was down there. We were with a reporter who was working on the story, but it's pretty, pretty gnarly. Yeah, it sounds it. And um, this death squad situation, I find really interesting. Like, can you can you tell us a little bit more about the death squads? How do they start? What are they up to? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't speak. Um, you know, I, I haven't met with them. They're really hard to get a hold of. I've heard stories of some of the reporting on some of them being BS, but they they're out there and they exist. Um, and, and, you know, of course you're going to see this. I mean, you saw it right in Mexico with, uh, with the auto defenses. I guess this is sort of similar. Um, it's a lot of former law enforcement or current law enforcement that are going out there and just, just executing gang members. You know, um, the police are doing that as well. And there's lots of stories of them targeting anyone who's even in a poor neighborhood, any young man in a poor neighborhood. Uh, but it, you know, it makes sense, right? Like these guys are, these gangs are terrorizing people. People are losing their daughters. Their, 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 their sisters, their, their sons. So it's only a matter of time. And El Salvador is not a country, you know, where this is going to be taken lightly. You have a lot of folks that, you know, I, I was I was joking about there there could be a movie because Salvadorans sent a lot of private military contractors to Iraq, you know. So my joke was, you know, you perfect movie, right? This guy who comes back from Iraq and he's just like over it and he doesn't want to be involved in violence, gets his nice farm in the countryside until the gang show up. And then you have, you know, your perfect... American movie. Yeah, and God. The Rock is the lead killer. Right, right, right. His like his niece gets targeted by the gangs and he's like, look, I don't want any trouble, but if you keep pushing me, boom. Um, so I don't know if that situation exists, but you have also a country where people fought a very vicious civil war in the 80s and these guys are still around. And like I said, so there are two different things, right? There are the death squads and there are these villages where there, there are the guerrilla networks that are still out there and the gangs have showed up and they've been like, we don't want you here. Get the fuck out. And if they don't listen... You know, what's the what are the locals? How do the locals feel towards the gangs? Because, you know, I've been in places where, you know, locals, whether they're pressured or not, might say, oh, well, we need the gangs here or whatever. I mean, what, what is the general feeling? They support killing the gang members um, like the Iron Fist policy has popular support because people are sick of being targeted in some of the gang communities. I think they're seen as 
protection, as like making sure that you don't get targeted by other gangs, as a uh, as 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 you know the the one power that's going to keep the police out. And the police have done themselves no favors by going in and harassing all the all the young men. But I think overall in the country. This has popular support going after and killing gang members. Like people are, are sick of that, sick of the gangs terrorizing them, and they want to see them murdered. Um, you know, in 2015, I spoke to uh, Jose Luis Sanz, who's this amazing journalist. Uh, you know, these guys are real experts. Like, read the read the Martinez brothers, read read uh, Factum, read El Faro. These guys do amazing work, and everything I've done is based off of the work that they've done. And he was saying like, this has popular support. This is how you win elections in El Salvador. Is how you crack down and you murder gang members and you get them off the streets any way you can so it does have popular support and the gangs i mean they'll try every now and then to be like we're the voice of the poor you know we bring the services and all that but that's kind of bullshit you know they are not doing the hezbollah model they are not providing services they're not providing water or or you know free water or 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 doctors or ngos and stuff like that and it's it's got this level of of weird irony because the gangs will like complain how the government doesn't com- come and provide services. The NGOs don't com- come and provide services. Everyone leaves our ne- like our neighborhoods like we're just poor. No one cares about us. But these agencies can't go into the neighborhoods because the gangs won't let them in. Um, so you, you can't have it both ways, buddy. Like you got to make a decision. You can't complain about a lack of services if you're also not going to let these guys in to uh, – to, to provide any sort of like healthcare. And we were there. We were in Distrito Italia, which is a, a heavy MS-13 neighborhood. Um, when one of the churches there had organized some sort of like, you know, healthcare carnival where, you know, there was preaching, but there were also like little booths that were providing, you know, eye doctor tests and, 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 and you know, tests for various diseases and stuff like that. And that was a huge negotiation by the, uh, by the churches to get them in. And... We had a situation when we were threatened, me and my me and my colleague, by MS-13, because we were we were around the 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 church service, and we strayed like we walked a little bit further. And how it works is, you know, they'll send the little kids up to you, eight or nine year olds, and they'll be like, those gang members over there, and they'll point off at the distance, say that if you walk any further, they're gonna beat you. Oh, Danny, man, <laughs> Jesus. So we turned right around. But of course, there is a level of protection that you have as a white foreigner. You know, this is white privilege to the extreme. Um, we walked down the, like me and my, my my colleague. We both have a lot of tattoos, and we walked down the beach in our tattoos. You can't do that if you're Salvadoran, right? You get scooped. Yeah, you you will be in a lot of trouble because we have this sort of thing. Like, don't get me wrong. You know, there have been journalists that have been killed down there, but it, it's a lot of attention if you're going to kill a foreigner. If you're going to kill a foreign journalist, it's not something the gangs want to do. Again, there are lines you can cross to to bring that down. What's more likely. Is that the people that have brought you into the neighborhood? They're gonna suffer. Um, they're gonna suffer the wrath of the gangs based on irresponsible things that you do. So you've got to be very careful about the work that you put out, about the things that you do, to make sure that the people that have put themselves on the line to get you this access don't get in trouble. And it's it's a crazy responsibility. Like I've had to, you know, you have to check in. You know, it's not it's not a level where like I'm I'm a you know you're letting someone look at your work so they can like. Uh, crack down on it and, and make sure that like the negative stuff doesn't get in there you're letting people look at your work so that they don't get killed after it comes out how do you as a journalist you know like, and I know you I know you what we've known each other a long time I know you're very like meticulous uh, with that sort of thing and you're not one of these journalists you know I'm not, not blowing smoke up your ass but you know I've learned from you a lot and I know that you're not one of these journalists who's just like fuck the fix or whatever so how do you make sure as a journalist that you are definitely not gonna fuck anybody up once you leave dude it's really really hard and I'm always nervous about it and I, I will check 
five times. Are you sure this is okay? Are you sure this is okay? I'll check with my colleague who's down there. I'll check with with the guys. I'm like, ask them, make sure that it's okay that we put this in there. Um, and I still don't know. You know, uh, they will give me the if they give me the okay time and time again, then I'm gonna do it. Um, but there's also stuff that you leave out that you really want to put in there that you just can't do because it will be uh, a risk and it, it sucks because it sometimes can make the piece a lot better. But that's a sort of thing that you that you have to um, that you have to that you have to do because look, I don't want that on my conscience. Um, and even shooting in these neighborhoods, like there's a lot of stuff where you want to sneak a couple shots here and sneak a couple shots there. You can't do that. And I was around a photographer um, this trip who we ran into in there who did that sort of thing and it really pissed me off. Because I, I get it, you know, I get wanting to sneak the shot. If like, if there's some military, if you're you're covering a war, if you're covering some military stuff, but you can't fuck around out there, man. And, and you're gonna get the people that that have taken the risk and got you in there in trouble if you do that. So it really, really made me mad when this photographer did that. Um, uh, she was shooting something outside a car window. We passed like you know the gang headquarters in this neighborhood district of Italia. Where we got we got access to a former for a pastor who was former MS13. He has MS tattoo on his forehead. It was a great story. Um, and on the way out, on the way out, this person was shooting photos at the car window, and we heard a gang member yell, "No photo, no photo! Don't do that! Like, do not do that!" And there are way too many journalists who are willing to do that. Um, and you leave, and you're fine, and maybe your editor is happy, but you fuck over the people that that don't have the option of leaving. It's very different as well, like. For example, frontline kind of conflict, you know, as you've done, if you shoot something like that, it's, it's a bit different. Like generally the, the danger is at the front line. With this, even though you said it isn't warfare, you know, it kind of is, you know, it kind of is because the danger is everywhere every second, right? Right. And it is, it is warfare, which, which, you know, it, it is, it is a low level war. You know, it's like, it's any insurgency or guerrilla war. You know, people are getting killed at a rate that's extremely high and it you know it goes into the the way you classify war right and that goes into the way you classify refugees we don't treat people coming from the northern triangle as refugees in this country and we really should because they are fleeing you know they are fleeing murder like vicious vicious gang warfare um and it's really hard you know i i i'm not an expert on those classification systems um i think you got to talk to academics about that what classifies it as war what classifies as it as not uh, and it gets even weirder when you start classifying the gangs as terrorists. But, like, that's the thing with these people that are coming here, man. They are fleeing, like, extreme violence. And you can't treat them like economic migrants, right? You, you should be treating them like like refugees. And we treat them like migrants. And we turn down their asylum cases. Uh, and it's pretty, pretty brutal. This path that they're taking through the Northern Triangle, through Mexico, up into the U.S., is like one of the most brutal land routes you can do. You know, the, the, the Mediterranean route gets a lot of attention and that that's definitely brutal. I don't want to take a, away from that. But the people who control this route up through Mexico are like the cartels, are the Zetas, are MS-13 and Barrio 18. And they they treat these people fleeing, you know, like they're less than than dogs. You know, rape is, is endemic, murder, extortion, beatings, torture, all that stuff. It is brutal. I, I really suggest anyone who wants to learn about it or anyone who wants to open their mouth about any of these people that are fleeing from these countries to the U.S. read uh, The Beast by Oscar Martinez and really familiarize themselves with what these people are going through. You know that, that famous saying, you don't put your, your, your child uh, on the water unless the land is more dangerous. You do not send a, uh, a child or take a child through that route unless you are fleeing something really really severe but yeah no they they are like the cartels 
the the route through through Mexico from the Guatemalan border to the U.S. border is fucking brutal. People are being tortured, like ra- raping young women. It is really really brutal. Anyone with money gets into like southern Mexico and flies to northern Mexico and then goes to the border. But the people who do the land route, like it is it is con- controlled completely by the cartels. Um, it is no joke. It is it is a savage savage industry. I'd counter like um, I get what you say when you said oh I don't know how to classify this you'd have to ask an academic I would counter that and say actually the people know <laughs> you know what I mean the people that are fleeing these right, things right, yeah. ask them because they can tell you you know they're they're gonna tell you what's happening no of course but then you get into the whole discussion um, you know people have to be treated differently whether if you call it ethnic cleansing if you call it war if you call it this and call it that and that's why a lot of governments sometimes are hesitant to jump on these these terms or use that as a loophole to get out of taking responsibility for things they should take responsibility for under certain conventions or or rules or asylum laws and things like that. Yeah, and so what do you think the media is getting wrong about these gangs in South America? Um I, it, it's it's tough. I mean, I think what they're getting wrong is is how powerful these gangs are in the US, which is that they're not, right? Um I, you know, you know, they the people that they're targeting are central central American immigrant communities. They are not a threat. I mean, you have Depends on what you mean by the media, right? When you any GOP politician who's talking about uh, MS13, MS13 this, MS13 that, I'm not saying don't target MS13, but they're not they're not coming into your homes in in suburban Iowa and and they're not they're not targeting your children, right? They're targeting the very people that these insane policies of of treating these Im- these these Salvadoran immigrants um, like they're trash. They're very they're targeting those people. Um, so the same people that, that you want to crack down on MS-13 by sending these people back to their country, you're sending them to death. You're sending them to a life that they risk everything to flee. Uh, and it's really, I don't know, it's really, it's really disheartening to see. Um, yeah, I think people think face tattoos. They think people on corners with, with AKs. It's not really like that. Uh, the, and, and also they treat these gangs like they're cartels. MS-13 is not a transnational cartel. They're not an organized crime group. They're a transnational gang. You know, they're, they're out there. They have some levels of organization, but they're not making a ton of money. They're not really involved with drug trafficking. Low-level dealing, yes, not drug trafficking. Um, these guys are not – they're not the Zetas. They're not Pablo Escobar. They're not El Chapo. They have these leaders – they have a faction of leaders in jail. They have some outside, and they've tried to get more organized over the last decade. But one of the reasons they're not involved in the trafficking is because they don't have that level of organization. Um, and, you know, some of these some of these studies that you can read on the gang talk about how – other groups like cartels and more organized crime elements don't really want to get involved sometimes with with MS-13 or with 18th Street because they're not organized, because they draw too much attention to themselves, and they think that that will fuck with their with their, with their business. Um, so they're organized in a level where, like, if you live in a poor neighborhood in El Salvador, like, you've got to be very careful how you tread. But they're not organized on a level where, like, you know, they're sending shipments of cocaine from El Salvador into suburban New York. And um, your film, uh, the, the, you, like we said, you were out there. You've been making a film. Uh, when does that come out? It should be out. Uh, n- I think this is going to come out the week that it comes out. It'll be up on The Guardian. Um, and that focuses primarily on, on, on the reform members uh, in the churches and their struggle. We're in the prisons a little bit. Um, but I should have some more pieces coming out. I'm doing working on a video piece for The New Yorker. I'm working on a couple print pieces that should be coming out uh, over the next few months. Um, but yeah, the main piece should be out, should be out this week. So, so today is Saturday, the 7th of July. 
so we're gonna say like so what next week basically so yeah yeah uh, uh, i would assume the 9th 10th 11th it should be coming out okay excellent and where can people find you uh to keep up to date with your reporting um uh, my my website is dannygoldjournalist.com which hasn't been updated in two years because i'm lazy uh my twitter is dg is serious and my email is dgold0101 at gmail.com if you want to pay me money to do journalism please contact me there if you want to pay me money just to you know pay me money you can also contact me there because i could use it <laughs> is there anything else you want to say before we uh, wrap it up we covered it i mean look I, I don't want to give I don't want to give any sort of uh, any sort of cred to the the stuff that you're hearing um, about MS13 from from Trump or from the Republican Party. I want to be very clear about that. Um, yes, they are a vicious, brutal gang. Yes, some of them have come into the U.S. It's a very minor number. Uh, do not let these people use that use the brutality of MS13 as a catch-all to target. Um, Central American immigrants, Central American refugees, people who are fleeing, undocumented immigrants who are fleeing the very gangs that they warn about. Because the way they talk about these gangs, that's how they actually are in El Salvador. And I also don't want to give the impression that El Salvador is a place that you shouldn't go to. You know, it is a beautiful country. The people are very warm. If you're a foreigner going there to hang out at the beach, you're not going to be targeted by MS-13. And there are plenty of people who go about their day in El Salvador that don't deal with the gangs and don't have any element of the gangs in their lives. It's, it's that weird contradiction, which I'm sure you've worked in Jake, worked with Jake, where it's like... Yeah, things are really bad in certain places, but it's also a normal country in some regards as well. And it's hard to strike that line because the kind of work that we do is always about the worst elements of a society and the worst elements of a country. I don't want to give people this 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 uh this concept that like all Salvadorians are involved in this life or are targeted by this life. Um, so it, you know, it's it's that weird middle ground where you try to really capture the violence and the suffering that these people are going through at the same time. I don't want people to think that El Salvador is only that. Yeah, definitely, man. I, I often say to people like one of the one of the best things that I've ever experienced whilst in like, you know, chaos and reporting from fucking horrible situations is I've always met and it is a very big cliche, but I think it, it is because of when your culture is turned upside down, you see the best people around there. You know what I mean? I've met some of the nicest people ever in the worst situations. Right. And it's also the exact same way, but it's also like, you know, Imagine I went to like the worst neighborhoods in Chicago and just like hung out with like, you know, all the all the chief Keefe affiliates and portrayed Chicago as just that. Um, so I want to just be very clear that the entire country is not that. Unfortunately, the kind of work that I do is you go there and you focus on those neighborhoods and, and that situation. So I just want to be very clear about that and, and about how things work that way. Cool. Man. Any any um, any coming uh, trips coming up to anywhere good? What are your plans? Uh, dude, try to keep earning a living. Um, I have a trip I'm trying to do in Slovakia, uh, but it's it's sort of a personal project. I'm going to interview the man who saved my uh, saved my grandfather from the Nazis, and his family hid my grandfather like Anne Frank style. But um, no, nothing, nothing, nothing as of yet. Just finishing up this stuff. I have a story coming out in Wired in the September issue. Uh, having to do with a tech company in Syria that I think is going to be pretty fascinating so keep an eye out for that and uh, and, and that's it right now alright excellent cheers Danny alright thanks so much Jake that was Danny Gold speaking about MS-13 and 18th Street the violent gangs in El Salvador and how they've been trying to drop out of the gang life by converting not to Catholicism as you'd expect in El Salvador but to evangelical Christianity in prison 
This episode was sponsored by DefensePost.com, Defense with an S. Also, remember, if you want to help Popular Front grow up into something else and also get bonus episodes that you won't get anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. If you want to keep up to date online, just follow me on Twitter. That's Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. If you go on the site, you'll find all the episodes there as well. That's jakehanrahan.com slash popularfront. Music in this episode, the intro was home and the outro was Son of Old. It's got a Final Fantasy VII uh, Sephiroth sample in there. If you've ever played that game, you'll probably recognize it. Uh, find Son of Old music at soundcloud.com slash son of old. And if you like the podcast, uh, please do consider doing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts because it does help it. Right now we're doing really well. I think it's been out for two months. We've got 12,000 uh, individual downloads. So I'm really happy with that and I'm hoping that we can move it on, uh, make it a weekly show if the Patreon gets moving and hopefully build Popular Front into something else. Thank you.